I was thinking what we might cover on Wednesday nights. I didn't really want to cover the same topic that we do on Sunday mornings because I know that some of our members, especially when it starts getting dark earlier, may not be able to uh, come on Wednesday night and I don't want to break up that Sunday morning study and miss out on something. So I thought that we would cover something different. And so finally what I came up with was I thought it would be helpful to study different religious beliefs. How do we answer those things? So I thought we might study denominational doctrines and look at uh, certain things that, uh, that they teach and that are in contradiction to what we know the Bible teaches. And that way we would be able to give an answer for that. Because when we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, "...but sanctify yourselves, or, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear." And so, let's do that. Let's train to do that in his second letter. As you read through that second letter, he makes a statement. He said, but now I bring you into remembrance. And he was talking about some very basic things that he was bringing into remembrance because it is always good to make sure that we are well grounded in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Uh, we definitely want to talk about things that are uh, some people might characterize as deep subjects. We always want to do that when we have an opportunity. But we never want to get away from the fundamentals of Christ because it is the fundamentals of Christ wherein we find the plan of salvation, wherein we find the steps by which we remain faithful in this life. And that's what we want to concentrate on, isn't it? We want to be faithful in this life and we want to be able to take others with us when we get to heaven. So what I thought we'll, we'll study, I broke it up into some categories we, were, we are going to begin tonight with a study of the, the generic topic of Calvinism. Okay, Now the reason we're going to do that is most, quote, Christian denominations in the world are based in that in some way. Okay, Now they differ in a lot of areas. None, no denomination teaches exactly the same as any other denomination. They're all different. Okay? but they are based in, in the teachings of John Calvin, at least in some way. And so what we'll do, we are, we're going to delve into this study of uh, denominational doctrines. We're going to begin with Calvinism. We're going to go through that study. And as we go through the study, we're not on a time frame. We want questions, comments, discussion, and we want to make sure that we're able to understand exactly what the Bible says. And that way when someone asks us, well, why don't you use an instrument in your worship? We can give an answer other than a friend of mine was telling me about a a brother in the Nashville area, and I thought he was joking. This is a true story. Around the Nashville area at a congregation, I, I, now I don't recall which one. Uh, wouldn't name it anyway, I guess. But uh, they wanted to bring the instrument in. And one brother who was up in age, probably been a Christian for 40 years, he said, we'll never have an instrument in here as long as I'm here. And they said, why? He said, because we've never had one, we're not going to start now. Well, that's not really an answer, is it? 
We want to know why we're not going to use the instrument. We want to be able to go to book, chapter, and verse. That was the, the basis for the restoration movement, right? Because you want to remember when the restoration movement started in the late 1700s, uh, middle 1700s, whatever the case is, uh, they weren't creating a church. They were restoring the church that was about 2,000 years old at that time. Okay? Close to it. And so we want to be able to give a book, chapter, and verse for the reasons we believe what we believe. And so we're going to start with Calvinism. We're going to study the Jehovah's Witness doctrine. We'll study the Mormonism doctrine. We're going to look at probably the Seventh-day Adventist denomination simply because it is a little bit different uh, in that they uh, uh, worship on Saturday. Okay? And uh, the, according to them, the mark of the beast is that you worship on the first day of the week. Okay? At some point, we'll study Revelation. And we'll learn what the mark of the beast is a little more clearly, but that's for another time. But we're going to start tonight with John Calvin. And uh, let's talk a little bit about his history. And again, grab my attention. Sometimes uh, uh, I may be looking somewhere else. Just holler out and I'll stop. And you can have the floor and we'll talk and discuss or, or whatever whatever is on your mind with the, with the current topic. John Calvin was a product of the Reformation movement. He was born in France in 1509. He uh, uh, began advanced studies in Paris in 1523 at the age of 14. He was a skilled debater. His father wanted him to go into law, so he sent him off to school. When his father died, he started studying uh, in, theolo- in the theological direction, studying Hebrew uh, and the classics. And on his father's death, he became very interested in the Reformation principles. Now, the Reformation principles, of course, was a movement that began to, uh, we might say back where I'm from, my dad might say, buck up against the Catholic Church. Okay? They understood that the things that the Catholic Church was teaching, and again, in this class, we're going to, we're going to talk about, we're going to name certain denominations, okay? We're going to do it in a respectful way. But we have to talk about what they believe, okay? Uh, maybe if uh, we're speaking publicly and we're somewhere, we might do it in a little different way. But in here, we need to understand exactly what we're, what we're talking about and, and about whom we're speaking. But the Catholic Church uh, had uh, come into existence and they were teaching all sorts of error. And probably the straw that broke the camel's back for those Reformation fathers was when the uh, uh, the Pope decided that w- they could sell indulgences, okay? Meaning, uh, I'm going out this weekend, no telling what I'm going to get into, so I'm going to pay in advance so the sins I commit this weekend can be forgiven. Indulgences. You can indulge for a price of money, okay? That's what really bothered uh, Martin Luther, you're, you're working, you're buying your way into heaven. Okay? And that's why he went exactly into the opposite direction of a faith-only salvation. At any rate, John Calvin was a product of that era. And uh, after experiencing what he called a sudden conversion, he began to preach the Reformation principles between 1529 and 1534. So he, uh, uh, hundreds of years ago, he uh, began his movement. He was exiled at one time to Geneva because of his teachings. He was uh, getting uh, crossways with uh, 
the leaders of the Catholic Church. He kind of had to go into hiding just a little bit. Uh, when he returned, after he left Geneva, he was there for a while. He, he uh, left that area, came back, and when he came back, he helped to uh, revise the laws of that city. Okay, John Calvin was basically a very upright, upstanding individual. When we think about people in uh, leaders in denominations, uh, we kind of have the modern mindset of the ones that we have today that are kind of in it for the money, not trustworthy. But hundreds of years ago, those Reformation fathers, and I think we owe them a debt of gratitude in that, they got the ball rolling, understanding that something was wrong. Now, they didn't go far enough. They didn't go back to the Bible. They wanted to fix what was broken, but it, you could not fix you cannot format a denomination to fit the first, uh, the New Testament church. At any rate, John Calvin was a good man. I believe and he wanted to do right. But he just simply got caught up in trying to fix something that was not fixable. Now, his teachings permeate almost every Christian denomination, and I say Christian denomination in that they claim to be followers of Christ in the world. Whenever an individual expresses belief in faith is a gift from God, salvation by faith alone, any kind of a direct operation of the Holy Spirit uh, on an individual in conviction and conversion, or the impossibility that a child of God can sin in such a way that he can lose his salvation, that individual holds Calvinistic tenets. Okay? They believe the teachings that John Calvin taught. Now, again, how do we answer those things? I think that the Lord's Church has done a wonderful job in helping us to learn over the, the, the years that when we hear something, we can pick up in a hurry. That doesn't sound right. Right? That's wrong. I don't agree with that. But where we haven't done so well is that we haven't been able to say why. Why is it wrong? And that's what we want to do. The answer that it sounds wrong isn't good, is it? The answer that we've always done it that way isn't good. This one I especially dislike, well, the preacher said it. If the preacher said it, it's got to be right. And when someone asks, well, what about this? You hear, well, let me go ask my preacher. We don't want that, right? Because guess what? Preachers can be wrong. I have, uh, I've held wrong, wrong beliefs on certain things until I learn my way out of it. And so, because we're all just people, we make mistakes. We want to rely upon why or what the Bible says in our belief system. So let's notice the five points of Calvinism. We're going to quickly look at them and then we're going to look into each one of them. And then we're going to be able to understand what they believe and why it's not correct and what the Bible teaches. Uh, Brother Curtis Cage used to tell me all the time, he said, you have to understand a denominational doctrine as much as those that believe it if you're going to be able to defend the truth. You have to understand what they believe also. Okay. Now, the five basic tenets of Calvinism, we've heard uh, the uh, acronym TULIP, right? T-U-L-I-P. There are five basic tenets, and they begin with those letters, T-U-L-I-P. Total hereditary depravity. Okay? We are born sinful. Totally 
nothing good in our character or our existence at birth. Total hereditary depravity. We inherited that sin from our parents. T. U. Unconditional election. God, before the foundation of the world, chose exactly who was going to be in heaven and who was not going to be in heaven. In essence, He said, these individuals are going to be in heaven, these individuals will live eternally in hell. Through no fault of their own. Or through no uh, righteousness of their own. Okay? You. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. Christ died on the cross only for those who have been unconditionally elected. Now, why would that be in there? There is... uh, Have you ever heard the phrase uh, divine economy? Meaning God doesn't waste time, energy, or anything else, right? He does exactly what needs to be done at the time it needs to be done in exactly the way it needs to be done. He's not like me. He doesn't... uh, You know, I'm, I'm still filtering through boxes in my office. Maybe like that this time next year. I don't know. That's not good economy, is it? Uh, I'm uh, obviously not spending the proper amount of time somewhere. Okay, God doesn't do that. Divine economy. And so they say because God doesn't waste time and effort, He's not going to waste the life, the death, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ on anyone that He chose to send to hell before they, the earth was ever created. You, unconditional election. Or L, limited atonement. And then you have the I, irresistible grace. Because you're born totally depraved, nothing in us good at any time, we cannot choose to do right. Okay? And so God choosing those people that He wanted to be saved before the beginning of time, they cannot resist His grace. Whether they want to be saved or whether they do not want to be saved, It's not up to them. It's up to God and you cannot resist anything that God wants. Irresistible grace, I. And then finally the last one, P. Perseverance of the saints. This is probably along with total hereditary depravity the two main characteristics that you're going to find in Protestant denominations. Okay? Or as far as that goes, well... The Catholic Church is so different. But anyway, you're going to see some aspects of this in that as well. But perseverance of the saints, we know that as once saved, always saved, right? Since you can't choose to be saved, and since God is all-powerful, He unconditionally elected you, there's nothing you can do in this life where you can lose your salvation. Perseverance of the saints. P. Tulip. T-U-L-I-P. Now, how did this idea come come about? How did this belief system, how was it put into place? This system, and this is what Calvin believed, he based everything on the central idea of the sovereignty of God. God is all-powerful in all things. Now, I would agree with that. I think all of us would agree that God is all-powerful in all things, but he relies upon that statement without giving heed to the rest of the truths found in the Bible. Okay? We have to take it all or we can't accept any of it, right? He contends that if God is all-powerful, if He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that 
it is reasonable to believe that salvation depends solely upon Him. We have nothing to do with it. God, again, chooses to save us or He chooses to condemn us. We have no part to play in our own salvation. Now that takes a lot of pressure off of us, doesn't it? That would be wonderful, I imagine, if that were the case. But that's not what God wanted. And for a reason, right? He wants people to love Him because why? He forces them to. He put. He makes them do it. We're scared to death of Him. No. Why do we love our parents? Because we want to, right? Because they first loved us, right? That's the exact same way with God the Father. Our first interaction with a father is our earthly fathers. We love them because they first loved us and we want to please them. We want to have a relationship. If God made us be sinlessly perfect through no uh, uh, desire on our parts, what good is that? You've got a robot on your hands, right? You can't choose to love. And so, that's not what God wants. Now, you see this again, these tenets run throughout the denominations of the world. Let's notice a few uh, articles of faith in, in various denominations. Um, in 1643 through 1649, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which the English and American Presbyterian denomination was founded in, okay, says this, uh, chapter 3, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now that says a lot, doesn't it? Everything that comes to pass, God ordained it and said, I want that to happen. No wonder in some places people disparage Christianity. You have a hurricane in, in 2005 in uh, the New Orleans area. How many untold innocent people died from that? And someone has the gall to blame God for that? They're having that same problem down in uh, Baton Rouge right now, right? People are dying. Babies. God said, I want that to happen. Well, no wonder people are disparaging Christianity. They're not disparaging New Testament Christianity, but they don't know the difference, right? And so, that is a problem. It goes on to say, by the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death and are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. So, not only are they talking about humans, they go all the way back into eternity, into heaven, and they say, those angels that chose to sin against God, He made them do it. Now that just doesn't make sense, does it? Calvinism bases its belief system on a very faulty chain of ideas. We're going to notice the foundation. T, total hereditary depravity, all the way up to the P, right? Now, if you want to tear a building down, do you have to knock anything else down other than the foundation for the building to crumble? If you take the foundation out, whether you touch the top of the building or not, it will fall down, right? Now what we're going to do, we're going to look at each one of these tenants, 
But if you take away the foundation, nothing that is supported by it as it goes on up can stand. Okay? And as we notice, each tenant, the following one, rests upon the one before it. Okay? In the debate with Zachary and Smith on uh, Calvinism, uh, I don't have the date on here, years and years and years and years ago, the and, and I can't remember now, I didn't put it in my notes, which one was uh, the member of the church and which one was not. But the defender of the truth said, when you get religion, talking about Calvinism, and I thought this summed it up pretty good, when you get religion, you don't want it. If you want it, you haven't got it. When you want it, you can't get it. If you get it, you can't lose it. For if you lose it, you never had it. That's a pretty good statement, isn't it? That sums up what we're going to look at. Now, let's expose the doctrine. Let's look at it. Total hereditary depravity, also known as original sin, meaning Adam and Eve sinned, and everybody that lived after them inherited their sin. Okay? Uh, The phrase total hereditary depravity implies three things. A person is depraved, perverted, uh, corrupt, evil, nothing good whatsoever can be found, okay? Totally depraved. Nothing at all can ever be good. Even if they do something good, there is an ulterior motive, okay? An ulterior motive. The condition of depravity is one in, into which they are born. It is hereditary. Not, not our fault specifically or individually, we inherited it and it comes from the parent. Okay? Now, Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 6 says, They, being Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of sin was imputed, given to us, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them from them by ordinary generation, meaning by physical uh, uh, generations, from this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. How many of us have ever known an atheist? Someone that says, I don't believe in God. I've known them. Have you ever known an atheist that was a, Good citizen that loved to uh, do kind things for people? Yeah, I've known that atheist. Uh, you know, maybe they help support an orphan's home. Maybe they help support uh, or, or work with uh, people that are older that need a little help along the way. Maybe they give to good causes, right? Notice what the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith said. Utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good. Doesn't line up, does it? The Philadelphia Confession of Faith is the first creed adopted by the Baptist churches in the United States. On page 24 of that creed book, it says, Our first parents, by the sin, fell from their original righteousness in communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all faculties 
and parts of soul and body. Goes on to say, they being the root, and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of their sin was imputed. And we, and, and there are all kinds of, uh, uh, denominational doctrines based on this. I've got a whole list of them here. We're not going to spend all evening reading their words. But they're all similar. They all say basically the same thing. John Wesley, uh, he said in his uh, Sermons on Original Sin, page 340, he lived from 1703 to 1791. Uh, those that are uh, the Methodist denomination uh, followed after his teachings. He says, We are condemned before we have done good or evil. Under the curse before we know what it is. So we're condemned before we ever even know what sin is. Nothing that we did on our own. Does that sound like a just God and a fair God would do that? Now, where do they base this doctrine? Now they base it in some passages. Okay, But, here's the thing about the Bible or any other book that's ever written. I can prove any kind of crazy idea that I want to prove from the Bible if I choose to lift verses and passages out of context. Okay, We're going to study the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons. They have this teaching where they baptize for, by proxy. They will baptize each other for people that have already died. Where do they get that? When Paul made the statement, why else do they baptize for the dead? He was defending himself against false apostles. The false apostles said there is no resurrection, there is no second coming. And Paul said, well, if they believe that, why are they baptizing for those that have already died? He didn't say he believed that. He was using their own teaching against them. Okay? So they've taken that right up out of context, and now they have a whole doctrine based on something Paul said that when you read the whole statement, he didn't believe that. Okay? So, let's go to Genesis 6, verse 5. When we read Genesis 6, verse 5, what we're getting to come, what we're, uh, getting into in this, uh, passage of the Bible is the flood is getting ready to take place in, a, in the writing. Okay? Now, it's going to take well over a hundred years before it gets there from this point, but in uh, in our written word, it's about a chapter. Okay? When we look in Genesis 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There you go. You're born that way. Now, I didn't get that in that passage, did you? I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't gather that from that statement. But that's one of the passages where this doctrine is built. Now, Psalm 51, 1 through 5, probably one of the most misused uh, passages in the Bible. Psalm 51 is a psalm written by King David after Nathan came to him, told him the parable of the ewe lamb, and said, Thou art the man. And so, excuse me, through repentance and confession, David wrote Psalm 51. Notice the first five verses. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, 
from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay, they use that passage to say that mankind is born in sin. Now, we're probably not going to get to it tonight. But we're going to answer each of these. We've got several more of these to go, okay? But, David didn't say he was born sinful. He didn't say he was born living in sin. Okay, we're going to break these passages down. Let's notice Psalm 58.3 while we're over there. This is another uh, foundational verse or passage that they use. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Now they stop right there. We're estranged from the womb. But David continued saying, They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Now we're going to get into this with a little more detail, but how many babies have you ever met that came out of the womb speaking I don't know any except other than my second child, Alexandria, who her papa said when he walked in the room, right after her being born, she raised up and said, Hello, papa. I don't think he was telling the truth. Babies don't speak, do they? They left that part out. Uh, we get over into the New Testament. Romans 3.19 All the world is guilty before God because they are born in sin. Now these are the statements that Calvinists will say. Now use... Romans 3.19. Okay? Romans 5.12-21, they say the guilt of the sin of Adam, and thus depravity has been passed unto all people. First Corinthians 2.14, The natural or sinful man cannot understand and does not accept the things of God because he is inherently sinful. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty two, Adam brought physical death upon all people, and every person who dies bears the guilt and penalty of Adam's sin. Second Corinthians seven one, both flesh and spirit are defiled. What are the consequences of total hereditary depravity? No unregenerate person can do good in any way. Now. What's the Christian response? We just kind of hit them a little bit. That's the foundational scriptures they use. Now, what's the Christian response? Someone asks us, or they, they make the statement to us, well, you're born in sin, you're born sinful, nothing you do about it. We have to be able to give a hope, or give an answer for the hope that is in us, right? To any man that asks us. what Peter said. So we need to be able to use these exact same verses and allow the truth to speak and defend against error. Okay? Uh, let's look at Genesis 6, verse 5. The thoughts and the imaginations of the hearts of the people were only evil continually. Now, here's what they say. That means everybody... Everybody 
Let's go on down to verse 9. Talking about Noah, Moses recorded that he was a just man, perfect in his generations. Not sinlessly perfect, complete, a follower of God. Uh, So, let's go on down to verse 12. What's verse 12 say? Genesis 6 verse 12. Notice, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Okay? We agree with that. Here's the second part of that verse. For all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. Now, it's, again, we can pick out one verse out of one chapter in a book, and we can prove anything. But when we look at the whole context, here's what we find out. We find out, reading verse 12, reading verse 9, that not all men were depraved. Noah was just. What about, go back a couple verses to Genesis 4 verse 26. What began to happen at that time? At that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Their information is not lining up, is it? Not lining up at all. When we begin to look at the whole thing, if men were depraved, why in the world would they call upon the name of the Lord? just doesn't make sense, does it? That's just one passage. Now, I guess we're out of time, right? We're going to have to do something about this. Maybe we'll... Go two or three hours or something on Wednesday night. Okay, here's what we'll do. We're going to pick up here uh, next week, and we're going to uh, think of any questions that you have, any comments that you want to make, and we're going to begin with Psalm 51, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at each one of these uh, passages that they use to support the idea of uh, total hereditary depravity. Thank you so much.